I wonder how many of you saw this picture on social media over the Christmas break. It's a little hard to see. <clears throat> it's a guy named Hal Vaughn. He's, he's the older gentleman with the glasses and the white shirt. This is his daughter, Pierce, who is a flight attendant for Delta. When Hal, who's Pierce's father, learned that she had to work on Christmas Eve, <clears throat> rather than sitting at home in his robe and slippers and wishing her a Merry Christmas from afar, he decided to fly every flight that she flew on Christmas Eve with her. Uh, six flights, Hal Vaughn was on every single one of them, and uh, the guy sitting next to him learned the story of what Hal was doing to be with his daughter and took that picture and posted it. It went viral before Hal even landed uh, on Christmas Eve. I just love the story, and I was thinking about this series on beauty and wonder, and I was asking myself, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are, what is it about this story of this dad who would do that kind of thing for his daughter? What is it about this story and many others like it that tend to go viral on social media? What is it about it that touches some deep place in the human spirit? Why do we find stories like that beautiful? What makes us want to share it with others? Right? People post that stuff because they want their friends to see it too. Why do, why do stories like that touch us so? I don't know. I got a B minus in college philosophy, okay? I don't know. I once had to write a five-page paper on whether or not a lake was inherently beautiful. And I was like, well... Uh, yes, because it's blue and calm and there's fish in it. Is that five pages yet? I mean, I just, I just don't know the answers to these kinds of questions. But I had a thought about why these stories resonate with us. I wonder if they do because they tap into some kind of an internal compass in all of us. What I happen to believe is a God-created sense inside most human beings that this is how things are supposed to be. This is how people are supposed to treat each other. And whether or not we believe in God, I, I believe we all have this ability within us to recognize beautiful behavior. And, 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 and this compass, this inner sense was put in us by God. And then I believe God exhibits this kind of beauty in all kinds of places and through all kinds of people and circumstances if we only have eyes to see it. <clears throat> and it's one of the ways I think that God kind of tries to woo the world to himself. And we dare not believe God only does this through Christians. If we do, we'll miss it. Because God will display his beauty through whomever he desires. But the difference between a watching world when we see stories like this and those who follow Jesus is that those who follow Jesus when we see and hear stories like this should recognize what we're seeing. We should recognize what we're seeing because it is in the shape, it is in the form of something we hold so dear. It is in the, the shape of the central component, the central image of our faith. 
See, the form of beauty that is the most beautiful when it comes to human relationships is anything that whispers of the self-sacrificial love of the cross. God in human flesh sacrificing God's self for the broken, sinful, undeserving world. This is the deepest form of beauty. A love so deep, it sacrifices its very self for the object of its love. A dad flying six flights on Christmas Eve just to be with his daughter is a mere whisper of this. And this cross-shaped, beautiful way of living was at the center of the early church. Their lives were shaped by what happened on the cross. And because of the sacrificial lives of Jesus' early followers, because those lives were so beautiful, it caused outsiders to look in at them and be overwhelmed by wonder and to want to follow Jesus too, to want to enter into this way of life. But something happens through the years and the decades and the centuries as we get further and further away from that early church and that true and beautiful cross-shaped way of life for all Jesus' followers gets kind of lost. It starts to slip away and we settle for what is easier, for what is more normal, for what we see all around us. And we become less and less inclined to find our lives shaped by the cross because, well, in too many ways, it's just too hard. It's just hard to live that way. The beautiful form our lives are to take as followers of Jesus is a costly beauty. It's going to cost us something. <clears throat> but Jesus never hedged this truth. He never hedged this truth. Look at what he said in Matthew chapter 16 to his followers. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, so whoever wants to become my student or become one of my followers must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. The beautiful form our lives are called to take as followers of Jesus will demand from us a certain kind of dying. A dying to our own egos, our, our dying to our need to be first, to be kind of precious in our own eyes, to be the most important, to be the center of it all. It will demand a total reorientation of the self so that we begin to live lives of sacrifice for others in the nitty-gritty, messy ordinariness of our everyday lives. This is what we're going to talk about in January. In this series on beauty and wonder, we're going to talk about both what it looks like to see cross-shaped beauty in the world and to be cross-shaped beauty in the world. 
And in one of his most famous teachings, what, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, because, well, Jesus was standing on a mountainside when he gave it. It's not really that creative of a title. In, in, in this most famous of sermons, he starts in the oddest way. See, in a world that screamed, blessed are those who have their lives together, blessed are the strong, the cheerful, the rich, the well-off, the religiously powerful. We might say, blessed are those who make New Year's resolutions and keep them, who make their beds every morning and do the Whole30 diet for the Whole30 and get their 10,000 steps in. Blessed are those kind of people. Into that kind of world, Jesus stood on a mountainside and said, blessed, which means looked on with favor by God, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Screech! You can almost hear the breaks going on in the listeners' minds. Wait, what? They would have looked around at each other and said, wait, what did he just say? What they heard was something a little bit like this. Blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual. For the kingdom of heaven is well suited for ordinary people. Whoa. Now, We need to understand this was a description, not a prescription, but a description of how life with Jesus works. And it was, and it is still is, in direct opposition to what we are taught to believe, which is, blessed are the spiritually strong, for God really likes you the most. Amen? (laughs) Blessed are the spiritually strong, for God really likes you the most. And let's just be honest this morning, can we? This is still what most of us think. I used to think that too, until it almost crushed me. See, I used to experience, you might not know, you hopefully don't know, I used to experience lots of internal despair because of my failure to be better than I am (laughs) in every conceivable way. And I used to think I should quit standing up front and talking about Jesus because only people who have it together do that, right? I would think to myself, I'm too weak. I have too many fears, too many doubts. I have bad habits, people. (laughs) I have anxiety, too many sleepless nights, words I wish I hadn't said, thoughts that would shock a sailor. How can I stand up here and teach about Jesus? Come on, Alice, who are you kidding? I quit so many times in my own head. I quit to Chuck, my husband, numerous times. Or I'd quit in my journal, I'd write it out, and I kept thinking, you know what, I'm going to go be a barista. (laughs) Or I'll work in a Hallmark store. FYI, I would be the worst Hallmark store employee. (laughs) I'd be like, are you going to buy that? Don't buy that. Where are you going to put that? But Jesus took me to school on this for about a decade. And I'm just now starting to believe Jesus when he says, blessed are the poor at being spiritual. 
What if this deep sense of my own weakness, sins, and flaws, what if this is not a disqualifier at all? What if in the good and beautiful kingdom of Jesus, a sense of spiritual poverty is the only real qualifier? What if, in the good and beautiful kingdom of Jesus, a sense of our own spiritual poverty is the only real qualifier? That's why I'm still here. Because I finally started to believe Jesus. And I so want you to do the same. Blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual, for the kingdom of heaven is well-suited for ordinary people. Now, this does not mean that we don't pursue spiritual growth. Of course we do that. But do you see? Your spiritual poverty, not your own self-created spiritual righteousness, your spiritual poverty is what can become beautiful your deepest failures, your most broken places, your shameful weakness, all the ways you feel you don't measure up, these can be beautiful because they can remind you that you need Christ. These can be beautiful because if you let them, they will keep you real close to the earth which is the very definition of humility. Did you know this? The word humility comes with the same root word as humus, which literally means dirt. There is nothing more beautiful than true humility, not self-hatred, but true humility, which is a right understanding of ourselves in light of who God is and how much Jesus loves us even in our weakness, especially in all of our spiritual poverty. Jesus calls us to a beautiful and deep spiritual, <laughs> spiritual humility. There is nothing more beautiful to a watching world than a church filled with people who are very aware of their own spiritual poverty. Jesus continues in this upside-down, crazy sermon of his to define the good and beautiful way of life in his kingdom because the next thing he says is, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Looked upon with favor by God are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Which his listeners heard as something like this. Blessed are the depressed who mourn and grieve, for they create space to encounter comfort from another. You're kidding me, right, Jesus? Now he's just joking with us up there. Blessed are the depressed? I mean, it rhymes and everything. Blessed are the depressed who feel worse than the rest, whose lives are a mess, who get put to the test. I mean... But everyone knows that's not tr true. Blessed are the depressed. But what if it is? What if when our hearts are broken, 
and we allow someone to comfort us, we are doing something and experiencing something and demonstrating something profoundly beautiful. And beautiful, remember, in the shape of the cross. Now let me offer a little aside here before I continue talking about comfort. When I was depressed some 25 years ago, which if you don't know me, I was. I was clinically depressed for three years after the birth of our second daughter. And when I was depressed, the last thing I felt was blessed. (laughs) And oh my gracious, people loved to comfort me. So many words, so much unsolicited advice. Have you thought about getting a little more sunlight? So many trite cliches. God will never give you more than you can handle. My friends, that's not in the Bible, never has been. So many Bible verses ripped out of context and then flung at me before people rushed out of the door so they didn't have to spend any more time with me than they needed to. This is not what I mean when I talk about comfort. No. Cross-shaped comfort is when we are humble enough to sit with another person in their pain, offering them very few words, if any, no advice at all, and merely the gentle power of our presence and our willingness to sit with them in their darkness no matter how long it lasts, period. That's what comfort looks like. And look at what the scriptures say. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth Second letter to the church at Corinth. This is, this is what Paul leads out with in, in this profoundly theological letter to this church. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Man, that's a beautiful bit of writing. When we face darkness and need comfort, the Apostle Paul writes, God will provide it. And he'll provide it either directly to us or he will provide it through the cross-shaped, beautiful comfort of another human being who is probably only passing on what they, in their moment of darkness, received from God. And the greatest comforters, tell me you know this is true, the greatest comforters are those who have walked through fire in their own lives and who have come out beautiful on the other side. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's the scientist behind the whole psychology of grief, she said it best when she said, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. 
Man, I love that. Beautiful people do not just happen. And Jesus knew this too. And he said, listen, my way of life that I'm offering to my followers is very different from the way of life that you will be taught. My way of life is formed by the cross and what happened there. And those who follow me are called to live beautiful cross-shaped lives. And two crucial aspects of that are, we're going to walk through these, what we call the Beatitudes in the rest of this series. Two crucial aspects of the beautiful cross-shaped lives that we are called to live are, first of all, knowing and owning your own spiritual poverty. Don't be afraid to do that. And second of all, being humble enough to allow yourself to receive comfort when you need it and then humble enough to quietly offer it to others when you see them in need to. Now, how do we keep reminding ourselves of this counterintuitive, countercultural way of life we've been called to? Because I forget. Don't you? I mean, I just forget and start living however the heck I want, which usually ends up in kind of a train wreck. But we, we need to institute in our lives certain habits that can help us remember the life that Jesus calls us to. And here's one of mine. And I've talked about this before. I've talked about this for over a decade. But what's a habit if it's not a habit, right? And something that you've done through the course of your life. It's a habit I come back to again and again and again and again to ground myself in the truth that my spiritual poverty is not a disqualifier in the kingdom of God, but it is allowed in my life because it can keep me close to Jesus. And this habit is a prayer that Christians have been praying for centuries, and it comes out of a parable Jesus told about a sinner and a religious guy and who was closest to God of the two of them. And the religious man comes into the temple and prays this big, beautiful prayer of boasting what a good person he was, and the sinner comes in and he can't even lift his head, and he just barely can say some words to God, and Jesus announces that sinner is very near to the heart of God, and this religious proud man is not. And that humble prayer that Christians have pulled from and turned into what we call the Jesus prayer is simply these words, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner saved by grace. And throughout the centuries, what people have done is they have used their breath to, to allow them to pray this prayer as they go throughout their day or as they hit a rough patch or if they run into their neighbor who irritates them or if they fail or fall in some way. They breathe in while they say, Jesus, Son of God, and as they breathe out, this is all happening in your own mind, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner saved by grace. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner saved by grace. Over and over and over, you can pray this prayer with your breath. And sometimes, it starts to pray itself. And sometimes, it starts to seep its way into your bones. And sometimes, it seeps its way into your soul until your spiritual poverty is like the clothing that you wear and your connection with Jesus is as close as your next breath. 
So I encourage you to think about that as you start this new year, maybe adding this habit into your life. It's probably the easiest habit you'll ever add. All you got to do is breathe. You can do that. So there's a, in closing, there's a, there's a pastor and a writer whose name is Brian Zond, and a lot of us read his book, Beauty Will Save the World, kind of as an inspiration for this series. And he said these words. He said, our task is not to protest the world into a certain moral conformity, meaning our job isn't to yell at the world to, to tell them to be good. Right? That's not the task of the church. Our task is not to protest the world into a certain moral conformity, but to attract the world to the saving beauty of Christ. Our job as a church is to be filled with Jesus followers who understand that our lives are to be beautiful in the cross-shaped way of the cross, which is that we pour ourselves out for the sake of other people. That's our one job. So will you please remember today that the two central truths I talked about this morning about the beauty of Christ are blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual. Blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual. Is that good news? For the kingdom of heaven is well suited for ordinary people. And blessed are the depressed who mourn and grieve. For they create this beautiful space to encounter comfort from God and other human beings. Let's pray. Jesus, we're forgetful people. And your earliest followers knew and understood that if their lives weren't shaped by what happened on the cross, they were not representing who you were to a watching world. And through the centuries, we just forget this idea and we, we get sidetracked and we let things slip away and we start to think that if we just say the right Bible verses or vote the right way or tell people to behave, that they'll somehow be attracted to you. And yet that was never your plan. And so you set out in your sermon, your famous sermon, to lay out for your followers, what a cross-shaped life looks like. And I pray, God, that each one of us this morning would be touched afresh by your call, your costly call, to live lives of cross-shaped beauty for the sake of our own souls and for your glory, but also for the good of the world. Help us to be cross-shaped people. Amen. Amen.